0: All right, everybody. So we have Eric Trexler with us today. He is completing his Ph.D. at UNC. And today's charity is going to be for the – you explain the charity a little
1: bit? Yeah, it's uh, Special Olympics North Carolina. Um, Special Olympics is kind of like a global charity. Um, the North Carolina branch um, – I've been volunteering coaching and powerlifting team here in Durham County for going on six years now. Um it's an awesome charity. It, you know, Special Olympics, all the athletes have uh some form of cognitive impairment and often physical impairments as well. And for a lot of athletes, going to training, going to events for special Olympics is the highlight of their week, their month, their year. Um so it's an organization that does a ton of great work on a super tight budget. Um so if anyone out there's thinking of donating um either your time or money,
0: um it really makes a huge difference for the athletes. That's awesome. And that's you know, one of the things I'm trying to do here as I said in other interviews is you know, I work with Operation smile, but perfectly comes on uh if they have a charity that's what we donate towards and you know that's a very unique one that you are intimately familiar with, so that's awesome, guys. If you like that cause, please help out. Uh, so a little bit more about Eric competed in two thousand eleven and twenty thirteen Correct. Uh, yeah, and two thousand seventeen. Oh, you okay, did. Okay. I know you did. That recently. Okay. Yeah, and what
1: cool. were your weights at each one? Um, well, my first competition was my heaviest, and that's usually right. not a good thing. <laughs> it's easy to Yeah. Uh, right. yeah. So in twenty eleven, I would competed uh, one fifty five, one sixty, okay. and my stage weights keep going down because I keep getting leaner. Yeah. Uh In twenty seventeen, I did two shows. Like I got my pro card, and then I made my pro debut. Nice. Um, and in those, I mean, I was like between 140 and 145 on stage. Wow, it's a huge difference. Yeah, it was a big difference, yeah. So I'm right. a good 10 to 15 times
0: lighter on stage than the micro show. Yeah, wow, okay, cool um, And so, you know, when I first heard about you, it was because you had written the first proposal for a grant from the Bioling Foundation, and that's going a few years back. Um, but you were doing a study on metabolic adaptation, correct? Yeah. And we were the main findings that you looked into that? we were at people who really got pretty much contest lean, what were those findings?
1: So, yeah, what we did with... Um, it's kind of funny. So like you said, I competed in 2013, which was right when I started grad school. Mm-hmm. And I showed up to grad school like literally a week after my last show. And everyone's like, dude, you, you look and seem like you are a dead person. <laughs> it was, it was brutal. Yeah. Um, it's recognizing when I showed up because I interviewed 40 pounds heavier. Oh, yeah. wow, wow. So, um, the first few months of grad school were brutal, just yeah. getting used to the new workload, new state, completely new. You know, I, I moved several states away from home, totally on my own. And, uh, the post-competition process with all those stressors plus everything that Fred put you through, um, it was wild. And I'd never really thought about kind of the aftermath of getting that lead. Um, so we did two things. First, we wrote a review paper about uh, metabolic adaptation in general. Um, so I wrote that with Lane and Abby Smith Ryan, who's my PhD advisor. And what we're trying to do is just lay out from a physiological perspective what exactly happens when pretty lean people get really lean. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did in writing that was, you know, we kind of laid it out put out the evidence that was available, which admittedly is not a, In 2014, there wasn't a lot of bodybuilder research to really pick from. So it was borrowing from animal research, obesity research, and a few studies in athletes. So it became clear to us, you know, someone needs to do a little bit more actual research in this population. But we also realized as we wrote it, we're like, man, all these things put you in a really bad spot after an competition. Um, and one thing, there's a few studies out there on preparation for bodybuilding, but almost all of them, it was like the day of the show, all right, we're done here, and everybody goes away. But the really interesting stuff happens after the show, um, when it's trying to get from getting a little leaner every single day to getting back to a normal body weight that you can actually maintain. Sure. So what we wanted to do with the study was uh, take a look at them right around the time of the show, but also take a look at them in that immediate post-competition period just to see what the recovery process was starting to look like. Um, and it was uh, logistically very difficult because if you're trying to look at competition recovery, you've got to make sure every single participant is going to be geographically close to each other so you can measure them. Mm-hmm. But also, it has to be their last competition of the year. Right. because if they're about to go do another competition in four weeks, then we're not actually looking at a post-competition period. We're looking at them just kind of maintaining. It. Yeah, so that's so
0: fine. A, a sample size of that would be pretty difficult.
1: It was brutal. And, yeah. you know, so the sample size was pretty small, and that <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it took a year longer than I thought, and I actually ended up having to fly down to Florida to go collect data wow. um, because that was where the data was. You know, usually, you try to attract it to you. Yeah. It's not even an option. Uh, I learned that Chapel Hill is not a bodybuilding hub. Right. <laughs> there. But um it was cool because what we could do is document where they were at at the time of competition, but also where they were, you know, a month or two later. and. The whole idea was to kind of make a starting point at which other researchers could build off that and take a closer look at some of these time points. Uh, the, the real practical stuff, when we when we found them at the time of competition, um, they exhibited signs that were uh, consistent with a slightly repressed metabolic rate which we would expect. That's mm-hmm. kind of the met- metabolic adaptation uh, aspect of it. Their resting metabolic rate was a bit lower than we would have expected based on their lean tissue. Yeah, we have off the top of my head, I'm not certain, and one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that in the paper we plotted individual points mm-hmm. because we wanted to really show that, you know, when you have you know a small sample, I think it was somewhere around fifteen people, giving a mean on that is informative, but we wanted to show the spread of where people were at. Right. And what's important is that whenever you read bodybuilding research, trying to figure out based on the means and the standard deviations, how many of these people were lean enough to really be dealing with this in a major way. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sure. So there, there was quite a bit of spread. No one was more than I, I don't think there were many people more than 50 15-ish percent lower than you would expect, 15 or 20-ish,
0: um, which is pretty consistent with other research. I have not double-check the paper. Yeah. Up- Just here. add my own anecdote. I, I had recently done that myself, um, and I didn't get a pre-measurement, but when they had taken my DMR, you know, with the tubes and everything hooked up, um, yeah. their estimate for me was about 1,900, and after, you know, about a probably six-month-long diet, uh, I was around 1,440 what they had me. So, I mean, it was quite a significant difference from their estimate for me. Yeah.
1: Um, and so, the thing to keep in mind is, as you're going down, then obviously your your estimated numbers also going to go down. Sure. And your weight reduces, to some extent, it's going to depend on what equation you're using, what parameters going into that equation. But, you know, it's approximated, you know, you'd expect it to be 10, 15-ish percent below mm-hmm. normal right. or below what you would predict. And again, different equations are going to shift that number a little bit differently. Um, but what our data shows there was evidence that metabolic rate was a little below what we would expect. Uh, and that certainly varied a lot between individuals. Some people mm-hmm. were well below. Some people were just a little bit below. Um, the hormones that we looked at were also consistent with what we would expect with contest prep. So um, leptin was low. Testosterone in mm-hmm. males was a bit a bit low. Um, cortisol was high, I think, uh, off the top of my head, but we, even with the case studies we've done, cortisol is usually high in your competition. Right. Even if even there's no right. dieting involved, it's just really stressful. Right, right. and it's that's not One of those. In the bioling study with okay. um, in saliva, at least one of the case studies we've done it was blood, um, trying to keep time to day consistent because there's sure. that diurnal rhythm. Um, yeah, so the hormone profile was indi- was indicative of a person who was really stressed, really hungry, and really tired, yeah. and the metabolic rate reflected that. And what we were interested in was watching those change over that immediate recovery period. And what we saw was, um, and, and just combining with a couple case studies we've done since, in that immediate period, one of the things to really look out for is you're going to have a lot of fluctuation in total body water. Mm. Um, and so, like, I think we saw it was somewhere in the ballpark. I forget the exact value but we, we saw that based on the ultrasound body count we did for that study, it looked like there was quite a big initial increase in lean tissue. But there mm-hmm. wasn't. what happens is you, you get more hydrated, more parts in your diet, more sodium in your diet, and literally in the first couple of days, you're going to see your, your body weight change. I mean, often by at least a kilogram, even if you're trying to keep it pretty, pretty consistent. Yeah. And, and that's almost cool. exclusively water weight. Right. And so the thing to keep in mind is some, some people after competition are planning for this huge re- rebound in lean mass Sure, how They're dying to rebound with some muscle tissue. Right. right, And the thing that can be tricky with that is a lot of ways you would measure body comp would actually confirm their suspicion. Right. But it, it would be uh, inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a competitor and someone who plans to be coaching a lot of people in the future, I think best practice is to budget in a kilogram or two of just immediate water weight and mm-hmm. then reassess from there. Um, what was really kind of a bummer was in the post-competition period we saw, aside from the initial increase of in water weight, there was really not a lot of lean tissue being rebounded. Yep. It was mostly fat mass, which makes sense, but it's still uh, a bit disheartening. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a little delayed, right?
1: In yeah, case, so, I was yeah. There, there seems to be, and that was actually, um, a researcher named Duluth has talked about this in the past mm-hmm. quite a bit, but um, there seems to be a preferential regain of fat mass in the immediate post-competition period, which I think is probably one of the more uh, applicable findings from the study we did sure. with Eileen uh, Grant. Um, and, yeah, so the main takeaways from that were budget for an initial pretty abrupt increase in water weight. And that's intuitive, but have not really been documented in research yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it's, it's quite unlikely that in that first month or two that you're talking about substantial increases in real lean tissue, right. just rehydration and glycogen replenishment. Um, so I think that helps shift the, the focus of how your diet should be oriented in the post competition period. Um, now, another caveat I want to put on that is certainly in the first month or two, we wouldn't expect full recovery um we did see things starting to trend in a positive direction even in that sort of time frame uh but a month or two is not even close right. uh, some of the case studies we've done and case studies that other people have done uh you know four months maybe six months you're starting yeah. to get in the ballpark where you start to see hormones are near baseline metabolic rate in your baseline um and so I, I think it's really important when someone's competing to um, help them kind of shift their 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 focus right um you know one i'm about to give a talk in finland that's only about bodybuilding stuff and They didn't ask me to talk about post-competition stuff, but I'm going to anyway Mm -hmm. because I feel like you have a responsibility. Sure. If if you're an athlete yourself or if you're prepping an athlete, you can't just act like life ends after the finish line. Right. And that's it. You have to have a plan for that. And the way you plan that is going to really significantly influence your timeline of recovery. Yeah. And recovery is a lot more important than just getting your bench back to normal, you right. know what I mean, or filling out your old t-shirts. We're talking about not being starving all the time, getting your energy back, feeling like yourself again. Yeah. Um, it's it's really important to focus on.
0: Well, Yeah, let's talk about that um, the kind of hyperphasia post-contest a little bit, because I know um, personally my thyroid levels, and this wasn't a contest, this was just getting pretty lean, uh, my thyroid levels took about three yeah, I would say about three months to get back to normal, where they were as far as free T3 levels. Uh, they dipped significantly below, you know, the normal ranges. Um, it, it took a while. And then, of course, you know, a lot of people find that they're hungrier once they start adding those calories back. Um, and so, I mean, just explain a little bit the role of there and, you know, how the fat cells, you know, they kind I mean, hopefully there's not a hyperplasia occurring if they go too far with it, but just kind of talk about that if you can
1: yeah I think um there there's a lot of factors to consider with a post competition diet and there's there's a fine line to uh to kind of straddle if you are too conservative about adding food back in what you're going to find is things like thyroid hormone hormone leptin levels testosterone levels uh, metabolic rate potentially they will remain repressed um, so some people kind of go in with this mindset that, oh, I'll get into contest shape and stay close mm-hmm. in perpetuity. Just for, That's right. my normal now. And that's generally not an advisable way to go about it, um, unless your contest shape is nowhere near contest shape, All right. which is All right. also not advisable um, <laughs> as a competitor. Right. Um, <laughs> so the, the fine line there is you need to add you need to get back at least to a maintenance and preferably a little bit of a surplus. Um, you know, if you're probably ending your prep still in some kind of a deficit unless you are ready well ahead of time. But, but certainly you want to give yourself a little bump Accept that little jump in water weight. That's fine. Um, and then you want to start working yourself back to a way where your body can actually have an opportunity to recover. Um, now, the other end of that spectrum is, like I said, the old myth of, like, after competition, I'm ready to put on a ton of muscle immediately. Um, hormonally, physiologically, you are not in a spot to be doing that. Um, you really have to recover before you can think of putting on any substantial amounts of lean tissue because if there's one thing the human body is really good at, it's avoiding starvation mm-hmm. in terms of starving to death. So you, you put your body into a, an extreme challenge like that, contest prep, the last thing it wants to do is, right off the bat, gain a bunch of metabolically expensive muscle tissue. Um, It's counterintuitive, and it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective. So the idea of just drastically overfeeding after a huge deficit, um, there is, like you kind of alluded to, a possibility that if we overfill adipocytes too rapidly, and they go from empty to all of a sudden this huge influx of stored calories, there is potential that we can see hyperplasia, the addition Mm -hmm. of entire new fat cells, uh, which is probably not ideal from a long-term perspective. Um, So it's really about finding that balance in the middle where you're facilitating your recovery. You're going to be pushing things like your thyroid, hormone, testosterone levels back into your normal range, uh, but not rushing it to the extent that you're going to put on a whole bunch of fat mass that you're going to have to deal with later. Right.
0: And in your talk coming up, are you planning on discussing how? Because it seems, from what I've seen, that your brain almost seems to ignore, you know, the fact that you have higher levels of leptin and CCK and you just don't, those satiety signals are kind of just blunted to some degree. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, that's the part of your question I totally glossed over. <laughs> <laughs> I, I meant to apologize preemptively. I've been writing code. All day, yeah, and when I write <laughs> code, I like can't interact with a human for like a day after. It's like yeah. it's like such a puzzle for my brain. Right. Um. So the post competition eating, um. I think this is a spot where anecdote is helpful. I know for me personally, the the one year in t- 2013, I had a terrible post competition rebound, mm. and the eating had very little to do with satiety, in, in my opinion. It was a lot more hedonic. Yeah. Um, there's you know, the, the hot hedonic reward of having abstained from that type of food intake for so long, and then having it accessible. Um, yeah. That's one aspect. Um, the stresses of post-show life, of going back to normal, um, certainly kind of feed into some of those stress-related eating behaviors. Um,
0: and honestly,
1: not needing to get on stage in front of people soon. It, it's one of those things where if you're like in, in my 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 perspective was there's no way I'm going to be on stage again in less than three years. Mm-hmm. So who cares? You know, right. like a bunch of, you know, ham and cheese in my egg right now sounds really good. So I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Because yeah. I'm not going to be on stage. For so I think there's the satiety aspect where, yeah, it's going to take left in time to rebound. Um, ghrelin, is, it's so variable day to day that, uh, you know, it's going to be up and down no matter what. Um, but, yeah, those things will take time. But I think the most immediate um, threat to a sensible post-competition diet is the other sources of eating, the stress-related eating habits, the hedonic eating, things of that nature. Sure. I, I
0: don't know if your experience reflects that or not. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. And actually, I was going to say, you're familiar with the book Body for Life, I'm sure, by yes. Bill Phillips. Yeah, and so I read that when I was 13. Um, that, that's kind of part of what got me hooked and, and everything. And I just thought, okay, I have to stick to it. And they recommend having like a cheat day kind of thing once a week. Um, but I just thought, well, I'll just not do that. So I went 12 weeks my entire summer Uh, just only eating like the perfectly clean foods. And I literally made a list as, again, like as a 13-year-old kid, as a list of all the foods I was going to eat when I was done. And I I just went on a week-long binge when I was done. I went from 130 to like 145. Um, And, I mean, that was just not a good time. Who knows what damage (laughs) I did to my body or how many fat cells I might have added. But, yeah, it was definitely a very unhealthy way to go about it
1: yeah you, you hit close to home with the list thing
0: yeah um, it's,
1: it's funny, like my most recent prep uh, was my most successful prep by far, mm-hmm. best I've ever looked, best I've ever placed. Um, and the rebound was was great. Um, I didn't have the whole post competition blues I, I didn't it wasn't a stressful time. Uh, the diet stuff was great and with that prep, I did make a list. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I made it almost because that was almost like cathartic where yeah. like, you're deep in prep and you're like, and I, I do like flexible dieting and premise, but yeah, I'm a bantam weight natural. Right. I mean, you, you step on stage at like 140, 145. I mean, good luck. having yeah, How fun much can with you really fit in. Like, Yeah. Right, you can't right. fit anything. It's like, yeah. um, an extra serving of broccoli was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it was almost like therapeutic to like put it on paper and be like, oh, I'll be able to eat these things after competition. It's not a big yeah. deal. They'll help well, me get back to a normal body weight. And yeah. I think the, the best thing about my most recent rebound uh, from competing was um, if you feel good about how you did with the prep and you feel like you're in control of your progress moving forward, it's not a stressful time. Mm-hmm. It, like if you know to expect hey, post-competition is going to be weird. I'm going to be super hungry. Uh, My hormones are going to be out of whack, and that brings a whole bunch of other issues with it. But if you know it's coming and you just address the challenge head-on, it's really not that big of a deal. So, yeah, yeah, I gained a few pounds right off the bat because that's what you're supposed to do. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. I mean, when I was in contest shape, uh, at least three people in my department, like professors and faculty members, asked my friends uh, about what horrible diagnosis I was dealing with to make really? me look that bad. Uh, uh, like, I mean, I was wasting away.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And so, like, that's, of course, you, why would you not want to gain a couple pounds off the bat so you can actually function like a normal person again?
0: Yeah. I mean, people yeah, thought I was quite ill. The uh, The psychological aspect of all that, it, it's, it's tough to deal with. Uh, that's probably the hardest part for me is I know, um, you know, throughout all of dental school, I was, I don't know, 2'10", 2, 2'15", 2, and it was, like, one of the bigger guys, and it was very mentally tough for me to really diet down, because for all these years, I was seen as that guy, and to go drop 30, 40 pounds, and it's literally, it's like, what happened to you? Like, oh, do you stop lifting? Like, in your regular clothes, you just look kind of normal, and it, it, psychologically, there, there's a huge, you know, toll there, I think. Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's always
1: demoralizing. It- if you're yeah. natural and you're trying to get really, really lean, mm-hmm. if you're wearing normal clothes, yeah. you, you might not even look like you work out, right. you know yeah. what I mean? And, and people will be like, oh, hey, looks like you're, you're not hitting the gym anymore. And you're like, right.
0: And you're thinking, like, I'm putting like, in more time than ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, I actually, like, totally live for it right now. Um, so right. thanks for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Stuff. Uh, so let's get into supplements a little bit. So you're very knowledgeable on a few key supplements. And the first one I wanted to talk about was caffeine. So, you know, let's say the light person is listening to this and they've never heard of thing or, you know, adenosine receptor blocker or anything like that. Um, How would you describe some of the effects of caffeine?
1: Um, Well, I mean, caffeine's effects are uh, pretty multifaceted, pretty widespread. Um, You know, some of the early papers coming out on caffeine as an exercise enhancer, um, it was cool because they were like, well, we're trying to figure out exactly how it helps with performance there's a whole list of reasons we're not really sure back in the day they used to focus more on peripheral stuff what is the caffeine doing at the muscle level um, but all of that research has pretty much worked its way up toward the brain mm-hmm. so the main thing that caffeine does is it is an adenosine receptor antagonist uh, it binds to those receptors and displaces adenosine uh, and so what that does is it gives us feelings of alertness but it, I mean it has widespread effects all throughout the body um, and that, that really is the primary dictator of, of the, the primary uh, mechanism dictating the effects that we associate with it when it comes to exercise, performance, heart rate, alertness, not being able to sleep at night. Um, so, so that's kind of in a nutshell what it does, but it, it's such a fascinating compound. Um, I mean, there was a, a really cool paper back in the day where they would, um, they actually took tetraplegics in the lab gave them caffeine, and then did electronically stimulated muscle contractions. Mm -hmm. And they actually found that completely um, independent of any uh, central, you know, brain-related mechanism feeding down into those muscles, the muscles themselves were being altered by the caffeine, uh, the way that they were contracting. So there's a lot more to it than that, but by and large, that's really what's, what's calling most of the shots.
0: Gotcha. And, um, you had talked before I'd seen another interview you had done and you had mentioned, you know, people have different experiences with the half-life in their own body and how long it lasts and how it affects their sleep. Um, something that I've noticed, and I've only heard a couple other people mention this is when I've ever taken a pre-workout or just coffee, I don't seem to have a problem falling asleep, but I will wake up at like two or three in the morning and just be wide awake. And I, I don't, I haven't come across why that would be but it's a pretty consistent trend if I ever have pre-workouts
1: yeah um, that is so yeah I was writing a book chapter uh, about caffeine and I, I had to cover the metabolism section and I was trying to write down a single clean value for the half-life and it's just in the literature it's all over the place mm-hmm. and you know, for the longest time we weren't really certain why we're getting, we're getting a better idea why that is now But, yeah, for most people, the half-life tends to be five to eight hours, which is a pretty extended Mm -hmm. half-life. But, you know, that means if you have a huge dose midday, you still have a pretty substantial amount in your bloodstream when it's bedtime. Um, Now, one of the things dictating that is uh, the CYP1A2 genotype that you Mm -hmm. inherited from your parents. And that gene is responsible for the overwhelming majority of, caffeine metabolism uh, phenotype basically and what we see is some people are slow metabolizers some are fast and some are heterozygotes Um, generally speaking if you're a fast metabolizer you're more likely to be that person that can have caffeine midday fall asleep and have no issues uh, throughout Mm -hmm. the night if you're more of a slow metabolizer um, you're more likely to have a more lingering effect you're also more likely to have side effects from caffeine like Some people have, if they have a lot of caffeine, they're more prone to anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, They're probably slow metabolizers. That's not a rule, but that's a general association between those two factors. Um, What's really interesting is that that genotype seems to also alter long-term risk. Um, So when, when people talk about, oh, I think a lot of caffeine might be bad for cardiovascular risk down the road, um, it seems to be more true in slow metabolizers than in fast metabolizers.
0: Really? Okay, that makes sense, I guess.
1: Yeah, and uh, there's not enough research to say anything definitive, but it is leaning. As it comes out, it looks like you're, whether you're a fast or slow metabolizer also influences your ability to get exercise benefits from caffeine, an ergogenic effect. Yeah. And the preliminary stuff, and i really like to stress how preliminary it is, Preliminary stuff would indicate that fast metabolizers get a better performance boost than slow metabolizers. Oh, okay. Um, so the take-home point is, at, as far as we know right now, across the board, you, you probably want to be a fast metabolizer. Right, sounds like it, yeah. Um, I was talking to my buddy uh, Greg Knuckles about it, and we're both um, really into lifting and really into coffee. And <laughs> you, you can get your genotype tested quite easily, and it's pretty yeah. affordable. Um. But I wouldn't because it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'd yeah. like the coffee's here to stay. Um, I hope I'm a fast <laughs> metabolizer, but even if I have that information, I'm probably not going to do anything. Right, about right. It. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's a great deal of variation between people, whether when it comes to not just your ability to get to sleep, but uh, an often overlooked thing is sleep quality. And uh, it, it's something that sleep science is really growing a lot. Um, yeah. There's a lot of fascinating stuff out there when it comes yeah. to blue light exposure, um, sleep quality, as, as opposed to just total sleep amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, just because you get to sleep doesn't mean that the caffeine hasn't had an overall deleterious effect on your sleep quality right. as a whole. Right. And that's another thing with uh, with bodybuilding, not to switch gears, but time and time again in our studies, uh, and just... Anecdotally, sleep Mm -hmm. quality during bodybuilding prep is brutal. Trying to get to sleep and stay asleep, Um, so that's that's kind of a double-edged sword. Where you're prepping for a show, almost everyone I know that's prepping is like totally abusing stimulants, and so you couldn't sleep anyway. But now that you're taking stimulants all day, now you just really don't have a chance.
0: Yeah, yeah, I haven't had unfortunately, and I I miss it all the time. I haven't really had coffee and. probably a good year or two, Um, and even so, my sleep, not at the start of the diet, but within a few months, it's, because I'm already a very light sleeper, you know, I'm doing everything, when I actually moved to North Carolina, I thought it was going to be great, because I was moving from a city to, like, kind of a smaller area, I got the uh, blackout shades and everything, no sound around me, I would still wake up, like, three times in the middle of the night, so when I was dieting, um, that, that got rough, and yeah, I would say maybe Half the nights, I'll get maybe five or six, and then I try to catch up, but it, it does get tough, and I'm sure with stimulants, it's, it's even harder. Yeah. Now, have you noticed, it seems like there's a difference in terms of the habituation aspect from the euphoria people get from caffeine versus the actual stimulation and alertness. Is that what you've seen?
1: Yeah. So when it comes to habituation with caffeine, um, like I said, caffeine's effects in the body are multifaceted. It affects a lot of different sensations, a lot of different processes. Um, habituation doesn't seem to be a just a cross-the-board type thing. It seems mm-hmm. like some effects of caffeine are more prone to habituation than others. Um, now, when it comes to performance, um, I gave a talk in Chicago about supplements, and this came up, and it kind of sucks when you can't give people a very clear-cut, simple answer, but... The habituation research with caffeine and performance is a little bit messy. Um, there's some studies showing, oh, it looks like the normal coffee drinkers had less of a performance benefit than people who never have caffeine. Mm-hmm. In other studies, it looks like it has no effect at all. Um, the most recent study on it, uh, was called like something about like killing the myth that, uh, habituation affects performance outcomes. It was a bit strongly worded, um, but mm-hmm. I tend to think people who habitually take in caffeine, it looks like they can still benefit when it comes to performance from a pre-exercise dose of caffeine. Whether or not, whether or not there might be a small reduction because they're a habitual user, that's kind of open to your, your interpretation of which of those studies you feel is, is most definitive. Um, but sometimes people will say, oh, you you have to restrict all your caffeine intake to get a performance boost. Unequivocally, it looks like the research would say that's not the case. Um, and in some cases, habituation is not a bad thing. So, um, a lot of times people worry about the diuretic effect of caffeine intake and that effect seems to be quite prone to habituation Mm. in the sense that the, the diuresis we see after ingesting caffeine seems to really taper off when we're a habitual user. Um, Not that it's a big deal in the first place, but, you know, it's it's nice to not have a a super pronounced diuretic effect.
0: Right, right. So the last time I'd seen the research as far as caffeine and creatine, I I think there was a lot of information showing that it seemed to kind of cancel out the effects uh, as far as like the ergogenic benefit there. Maybe you can update me as like what the research now is showing, if there's anything new there.
1: Uh, Well, there's nothing new, which is frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. I did a project on it um, back in the day, and probably more importantly, I, I talked to Roger Harris about it. Mm-hmm. And Roger Harris essentially invented creatine. Right. I mean, he's, he did like the initial study saying, "Hey, what if we started giving this to people? Right. I think it might help their muscles." So uh, Roger Harris is a legend, and I, I talked to him about it and. If you look back at the research on it, they originally tried to do this stuff. Uh, they tried to give caffeine with creatine because they thought it was going to enhance creatine's effect. They thought it would help with uptake, and um, what they found in the first study they did was actually the, the group that only got creatine had a performance benefit, but the group that got creatine and caffeine together um, actually had no effects greater than placebo. Right. And so they were like, "Well, that's weird." And they followed up on another study and uh, found something similar. And Roger Harris followed up uh, later, and he's like, no, you guys are, I I don't think that's legit. Mm. He did a study, and they actually kind of found the same thing. Um, But the question is, there's not a ton of evidence on it. Um, A lot of people are resistant to acknowledge the evidence that's out there. The question is, why might that be the case? Um, So some authors have said that they think that uh, caffeine and creatine have divergent effects on the sarcoplasmic reticulum. That they think, uh, the way that the sarcoplasmic reticulum releases and reuptakes calcium, it's getting opposing effects from caffeine and creatine, and that's what's canceling out the effects on muscle performance. Roger Harris has a much simpler approach.
0: He is a,
1: and, and I mean, this is a personal conversation we had, so it's not like he's going out and, you know, writing mm-hmm. about it, but Um, he's a lot, he seemed a lot more, uh, to, it seemed like his take was more that gastrointestinal discomfort is more likely when you have a high dose of caffeine with your creatine. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think even in the abstract that they published on their, their project they did, they mentioned like, yeah, creatine with caffeine, we had a lot of people complain that there's upset stomach. Yeah. And obviously your performance is not going to be at your all-time best if, you know, your stomach hurts and you're right. sick. Um, so the state of the evidence to kind of wrap it all together, there has not been a lot of research directly investigating it. The ones that have looked at it directly seem to indicate that there might be some kind of interference there. It may be happening at the muscle level. It might just be the fact that people are trying to do an exercise test with a a bellyache. Right. Um, (laughs) Now, now the thing that's important to note and the reason that everyone's so hesitant um, to accept this research, a lot of the early studies on creatine, they would say, go ahead and mix this into your morning coffee because it's hot and it'll dissolve better. Mm. These are all the early creatine studies showing, Hey, this helps with muscle performance and strength and power. So the thing that we have to reconcile looking at this body of literature is that, most of our creatine, most of our early studies, they were mixing it in, in caffeinated coffee.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: And it worked. Hmm. Now, now you have to work around the fact that coffee is not the same as caffeine powder. Right. You have to work around the fact that an ergogenic dose of caffeine is substantially higher than a typical single cup of coffee in the morning. There's a lot of factors to reconcile there, and honestly, I don't think the body of evidence is ready for a super definitive conclusion. Right. And people don't like that, but that sorry, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um. So I, I think to to give a take home point, if you like creatine and you like caffeine, one thing you can do, let's just go with the idea that it really is a stomach discomfort thing. I would say separating out your daily doses is prudent Mm -hmm. if it is an issue you'll get around it if it's not an issue it'll everything will still work fine anyway so Mm -hmm. i usually say if you're worried about that interaction i think you can still use both well i say take your caffeine before your workout you know 30 to 90 minutes before and then take your creatine either directly post-workout or sometime later in the day and I think by separating the doses, if it is a stomach discomfort thing, you've alleviated that risk.
0: Gotcha. Great. Yeah. So I'm just curious what your experience with this is. Is I personally never responded to creatine, and you know I had friends, and they tell me right away they're gaining you know three to five pounds of water weight and all that. Um, I've tried many different brands. I never noticed when I start it, and I never noticed when I stop it. Um, I believe the research shows a roughly 30% non-responder rate. I could be remembering yeah. that incorrectly, but, um, based on the people you've trained and work with, what do you find that like, how many people or percentage respond or don't respond?
1: Oh, that's, that's a really tough question. So I've never responded.
0: Okay.
1: Um, yeah, it's, I've just, I've never seen my body weight change mm-hmm. even with the loading phase. Uh, I've never seen my performance to change substantially. Yeah. Uh, So I I believe I'm a non-responder. But again, what we're talking about here with a non-responder is that your muscle is fully saturated without adding it as a supplement, which either means you have – it's probably – you have high natural muscle content. And if your diet tends to be a little bit higher in creatine, Mm that will also affect that. You know, we see that typically vegetarians have a little bit lower. Right. Um, The – the, the challenge of trying to assess how many people are non responders is the very premise of the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. So, like, if yeah. I ask my client, uh, hey, did that work? Um, it's what we would basically call a, a single subject open label study. Mm-hmm. They know exactly what they took and they know exactly what it's supposed to do. Right. Um, so we're all biased whether we want to be or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no way to, Talk yourself out of your own bias, no matter how hard you try. So, if you're super skeptical by nature, you're probably going to be a non-responder. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. If, if you're super gullible by nature in this particular realm, you're probably going to be like, "Wow, I can't believe I ever trained without it."
0: Right. Um, right.
1: One of the things that's tricky with the the uh, putting a, a population number on it is, you know, that one of the the first studies that tried to approximate um, you know, this is how many people were non-responders, they, I don't think they ever intended to make it a population value. I mm-hmm. mean, this is small sample research by nature, um, which means that to, to say that, yeah, these 22 people approximately, you know, resemble the world population, uh, I don't know anybody who wants to go out on that limb. Right, so right. W- what they were really saying was within our sample, it looks like, you know, 20, 30 percent, we didn't get an effect, but with small samples, a, a statistic like that has to be taken with a grain of salt. Right. Um, the problem is you're never going to get a big sample study on that. It's yeah. just never going to happen. Uh, whether you want to do muscle biopsies, which are super invasive, or mm-hmm. you want to do like uh, magnetic resonant, resonant spectroscopy, which is super expensive, um, there's huge hurdles from a practical perspective of saying, hey, let's bring in... 15,000 people like NHANES and figure out what a normal creatine level is within the muscle tissue. Um, So there's challenges there, which um, it could be answered. um, But, you know, I'm pretty comfortable using the small sample estimate as a rough guideline and then letting people's experiences dictate uh, whether or not we feel like we really got a tangible benefit from it.
0: Sure. Yeah, the placebo thing is is a very interesting topic. Maybe we can get you back on to discuss placebo and sleep and some other things. But uh, I've I've noticed that, I mean, I am very skeptical by nature. Um, And it it does, now that you say it, it does kind of seem to be that my more, I guess, scientifically minded, skeptical friends aren't responding as well. And my friends who are kind of just, you know, buying up all the supplements, kind of like the typical pro lifters, they seem to really rave to me about (laughs) their responses. So maybe there's something there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, my,
1: my lifting experience was cultivated. Like I was a 12 year old who was just lifting with football players and wrestlers on my team. Yeah. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of supplements that have come and gone <laughs> right. that everyone in the, in the gym got on and said, I can't believe I trained without, you know, 15 yeah. grams of histamine right, or, right. you know, 10 grams of arginine. And it's just like, the more we do research on them, we just, we just can't identify much of a benefit. Right, so yeah. It's, it's kind of tricky.
0: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about nitric oxide boosters there. So <laughs> I know you're, you're familiar with those, obviously, and um, it seems, I mean, obviously everybody likes to get the pump and everything, but as far as long-term benefits from it, are we seeing that now? Uh,
1: we're not seeing anything long-term because yeah. we're not looking at it. Um, yeah. So if, if you look at the uh, the nitric oxide supplement literature, mm-hmm. um, there's just not much that looks at long-term outcomes. It's usually we brought you into a lab, we gave you some citrulline malate, we had you do a bunch of bench press an hour later. Um, so we, we don't really have a body of literature in which we're giving people like citrulline malate or beetroot juice for 8, 12, 16 weeks, training them and seeing if it's actually uh, contributing to their muscle growth or their strength gains over time. Um, For now, the literature we have, uh, we can look at the acute short-term response. That's just all we've got to go with right now. Um, And with citrulline malade, there's, there's quite a few studies out there showing if we give it to you an hour later, you do more repetitions before you fail. So, You know, we had you do three sets of bench to failure. We added up all the reps. You got a few more with citrulline than you did with the placebo. And the premise there, from a, I mean,
0: no one really cares
1: if they got three more reps that day. I think the premise there is that you're doing more overall training volume and that over time that's going to contribute to more muscle growth and more strength adaptation. Um, The premise makes sense, but we still need to see how much those few extra reps really really contribute. Um, there is a similar study done with beetroot juice, but there's only one of them uh, where they gave beetroot juice and then, uh, you know, some amount. Of, I forget exactly how they timed it in that study, but then they did a single bout of, you know, repetitions to fatigue, and it, it did the same exact thing, a uh, mm-hmm. few more reps before you fail. Um, there's some mechanistic uh, arguments that you could make, saying that nitric oxide would generally contribute to muscle growth. Um, the, the problem is we, there, there is a very mechanistic evidence from, like, animal models or, like, cell culture kind of models or, like, extracted fibers where we could say, oh, nitric oxide played the role in this. The question is, does going from a normal nitric oxide level to a slightly higher one from supplementation is that enough to really affect the the grand scheme of things, the overall magnitude of growth? So like there's some stuff in animals where they say, hey, we completely blocked all endogenous nitric oxide production or, or virtually all of it, and it blunted their muscle growth. That would indicate nitric oxide plays a role, but that doesn't mean necessarily that increasing it from normal to a little bit above normal is going to do anything tangible? So, right, we really just need need some more research to be done
0: on it, right? And and you mentioned the premise there, the kind of the theory behind it, and that's something that I've actually wondered for years. I mean, even since college, and with creatine and anything where they say, okay, they took this supplement and you know they got two more reps, let's say. And I'd really be interested to hear what you think about this because. To me, let's say somebody takes their, you know, some lift from 100 pounds for 10 reps to 150 pounds for 10 reps. The, hyper, like the hypertrophy comes from that, I mean, in part, from that change, is that increase there. So let's say they took creatine and they went to from 100 for 12 reps to 150 for 12 reps. That change is about the same. So I would wonder, is that person, even if they respond to creatine and they get those initial increased reps, If over the course of those years or however long that took, you're still getting that increase in 50 pounds or whatever, would that really net in that much more hypertrophy unless you were going from, you know, that increase was going that whole time? I hope that makes sense the way I'm wording that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think basically the question is uh, when you look at the millions of tons of training volume that occur over a lifting career, did those two extra reps from your creatine matter? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a good question. I I think um, one of the things to keep in mind with supplements across the board, and I say this every time I publicly talk about them, is we're talking about small effects, Mm -hmm. like eerie. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, you know, depending on how much faith you put into standardized effect sizes, you're not going to find a supplement that consistently has like a Cohen's D value above 0.2, 0.4. You'll see instances where they're a little bit higher than that, but that's pretty much what we're looking at. It's a small effect in the short term, uh, which can only be thought to culminate to a small effect in the long term. But the question is, how much do you care about small effects? Right. Um, And how small is that effect? Unfortunately, we're kind of extrapolating because – you, we we don't really we don't really have anything to go with in terms of you know just thinking of the logistical nightmare that it would be to try to approximate over the course of a, a really tangible time frame of right. a year two years those types of long term training studies with a supplement mixed in they just don't they don't take place. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's um, you know, I, I've i done a ton of research um, and even when I was like full blown research um, had virtually nothing else going on in terms of actual application or anything it, it's crazy to think that we can't learn from people that are out there day to day with athletes who are applying this stuff and actually getting that several years of feedback mm-hmm. um, so I would say A small effect, if you're a super intense athlete who wants to do whatever, you know, any small edge they can get on the competition, I think there's instances where supplementation does make sense and could contribute to long term having a slightly higher ceiling for your adaptations. Um, how much that matters to you, uh, is more of a, it depends on what you're training for and how much you're willing to invest in a small, a small difference.
0: Yeah. And I think as long as people understand that it is small, they can make that educated decision. I think the problem is when, you know, you've got super pump 250 for a hundred dollars a month because, you know, they're told that if you really want that edge, you've got to get that. And I think it's, I mean, I remember, I don't remember who I was talking to, but somebody was telling me how they thought the supplements only gave them an extra 10 pounds of muscle. And it was just like if you thought those supplements gave you 10 pounds of muscle in any reasonable time frame, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you would disagree, but I, I think that's kind of crazy to think it would make that much of a difference. Um, but as long as, like you said, as long as people understand then it's, it's really up to them how much they want to put into it.
1: Yeah. I think another thing to keep in mind is that not everyone views their training career as a kind of trajectory leading to some steady state status. Mm. Um, And what I mean by that is there might be certain times in your athletic career where you're like, for the next three months, I'm all in. I'm pushing to some kind of competitive endpoint, And during this time, it might make a lot more sense to be kind of more invested in my supplement regimen because we are leading up to an event in which we're trying to peak. Um, And so in those instances, like, yeah, if you said, oh, I took creatine, you didn't. Over the next 10 years, who gains the most muscle? I don't know if everyone views their supplementation that way. I think for some people, it's more, I'm doing a contest prep. I'm going to be in a state where muscle loss is a very pertinent concern. What can I do to make sure that I'm not losing out on training volume over the next 12 weeks? Sure. So I think that's probably the more sensible way to look at it is short-term, focusing in for this chunk of time, we're pushing with everything we got up to this peak and, and so like I know for me there's certain times where I take more supplements and some when I take less
0: yeah okay that makes sense so uh, that pretty much wraps it up today my uh, last question here is just you know everybody listening to this you know we've covered a lot of topics here um, but somebody who wants to make the most of let's say the next three months like you were saying what's your next actionable step for those people listening
1: to make the most of their next three months
0: Yeah, let's say, like like you were saying, they're trying to put everything into this main advice there.
1: Uh, It's
0: a broad question, so you can take it any way you want.
1: I would say um, it's all about consistency, and especially for someone making a big push, um, being consistent. So, like, a, a terrible workout is substantially better than no workout. Um, and then on the flip side, you, there's nothing you can do in a single workout that's going to absolutely change your performance or change your physique, but there aren't things you can do in a single workout to completely ruin them. So if you're, in the next three months, if you're feeling lazy and you're not super motivated, remember, just getting there and doing something is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. If you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're going nuts for the next three months and killing yourself in the gym, remember one extra rep probably doesn't matter that much, but tearing your pec on that rep does, you know. So don't put yourself in a sling or on crutches because there's some end point coming up.
0: Okay, great advice. So uh, this was Eric Trexler, and where can people find you?
1: Uh, So I've got a Facebook. Uh, I'm on Facebook. More, more than any other social media. Um, okay. just Eric Trexler, Twitter at Eric Trexler, Instagram at Trexler fitness. I've got a research gate page. If you want to see some of the, the research I've done. Um, yeah, I'm kind of all over. And, and when I finish up my PhD this year, I'll be going into business with Greg Knuckles and working cool. for a company called stronger by science. So I'll awesome. certainly be very reachable with all the stronger by science platforms. And, uh, I'm stoked. Like I said, the last, uh, the last six years, it's been doing just a ton of research. And I'm really excited about being able to do more stuff like this, where it's not just living in the lab, but it's actually bringing research to the people trying to apply it uh, and trying to um, make it accessible and, and turn a, a research question into an actionable, practical uh, thing that people can use
0: awesome yeah i'm actually really excited to see the work you put out because i know getting your phd you're kind of just locked in there all the time uh, and i I feel like you're going to be one of the big influences in this industry so i'm excited to see what you've got all right i appreciate that all right thanks for talking man yeah hopefully you guys enjoyed nerding out with eric trexler as much as i did if you have other topics that you'd like to see covered please feel free to comment down below like the video, and subscribe for more interviews. And if you like the cause that he had mentioned today, please feel free to make a donation as well.